You're listening to a Soul Fire Productions podcast. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning, Connor. How are you today? I'm so good. You brought me coffee and flowers. You made my quarantine. Allegedly. I love you. <laughs> that was you. very sweet. Thank you, baby. No problem. It really did make my week. You know what's so sweet? This juicy ass pod right now. This so is like if this, if this pod was a fruit, it'd be just a big, ripe, sweet peach mm. just dripping down your face. Ooh. I'd like that. Oh, that got erotic. It's <laughs> not where it's I was going. Where Connor's like that. head is. <laughs> <laughs> this show means a lot to me because you should tell people who who are who who the guest is. I was about to. You should tell them now. <laughs> tell them now. <laughs> Laura McCowan. Oh my gosh. Wow. First of all, this was like such a pinch me moment. This woman was in our home. And that was just so delightful. She's the last person that ever came into our home. (laughs) Laura, thanks for coming over for our uh, quarantine bone voyage. Um, This is her book. We are the luckiest is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. And I say that multiple times to her in this show, but I truly mean it. The way that she is so raw and honest about her journey to sobriety and her role as a mother through this is it will bring you to tears, but it will also just open you up so much to what's available for you when you get radically honest and take responsibility for yourself. We talked through so many different things in this episode. I don't want to go through all of them, but I, I do want to mention part of the conversation I, I loved the most was actually when the two of you were talking because you had uh, you were raised by parents who were addicts and you had such experience with this uh, from the child's perspective and listening to the two of you go back and forth on that and her input and her insight and what she saw and just kind of the light bulb moments that she had as you were talking about your experience as a kid with her own daughter. And I just thought it was really beautiful, uh, across the board. Yeah. It was cool to talk to someone about, about that, who has been on the, the mothering side. Cause and, and we, as we get to it in the podcast, like it's a, never been an easy thing for me and my mom to discuss lately or the past year or so more, but still it's, you just gotta understand it's a hard thing to, yeah. And mom guilt is share. real. Yeah. Mom, and then we talk about that, the yep. guilt and the shame and how that kind of can actually fuel more addiction. So that's at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a wild experience, but, um, yeah, I was lucky that I wasn't necessarily immersed in it. I was kind of on the outside thanks to my stellar grandparents saving the day, but really that was my, definitely my favorite part of the conversation because I don't get to have those kind of, you don't get to have those kind of talks very often if you're in, if you've been in that position. And if you have people in your family that have struggled with addiction, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a really, it's a really touchy subject. That yeah. a lot of people want to turn a blind eye to and keep it under the under wraps, but yeah. that doesn't do anybody any favors. In I my agree. Opinion. And I think this conversation was recorded before all of this happened in the world. And I still believe it's incredibly prevalent and relevant for right now because sobriety is something a lot of people are struggling with right now. And the chaos and the stress really drives people to numb and check out and that's something we discuss at length here. And I also want to thank Laura and give her props. She has been holding online sobriety circles, which I think is absolutely incredible. So when you head to her Instagram, we'll put all of the links in the show notes. You can find where and when she's holding those and what those entail. But I I think that's a remarkable thing to be offering. And 
this is an important conversation when we're in a time when we all really want to check out and wake up when it's over. And she is rooting for everyone to stay present and stay strong and stay true to who you are and your values and, and why you show up the way you do every day. It's a good one. It is. Well, make sure if you love this podcast, this episode or the whole podcast in general, or just Connor, if you just, or love just Connor, lo- if you love me and my milky buttery voice, just milky. write him love notes in the <laughs> reviews. I dare any just people go, to do that. Please. Just go to Apple podcast, leave a review. And if you love this podcast, be sure to share it and enjoy Laura McCowan. Thank you so much for being here. Honestly, it's it's such an honor to have you here. And I love everything that you are sharing in the world and the way you show up. And there's such a level of transparency that you bring to everything. And I think, I mean, you talk about this in your book, which I really appreciate, but you really understand there's such a stigma around so many topics. And I think I don't want to misquote you, but you talked about how we're doing such a disservice to the community by not talking about things that are really important and really scary like this. Yeah. Why did you feel this need to be so transparent and raw about your own journey? You know, I, at first I was doing it to really save my life. Like I didn't, um, I wanted one version of me in the world. There were in the book I wrote about, there was this like old journal entry where I just had two words and it said one version because there were so many different versions of me. There was the Laura at work, Laura at, you know, um, home, Laura, the mom, Laura, friends, and Laura, that you might be dating. (laughs) And then there was all these, the internal version, which I didn't even really, like I was lying so much and I was trying so hard to keep this thing going, keep my drinking going and just try to keep up this facade that, um, it really broke me. And so a lot of why I started to share was to, to really get to that point where there was just one version And a lot of it was like trying to figure out what my story was. You know, I didn't have many answers. I still don't have many answers, but talking, what I have found is that talking about things is how, and writing about them for me is how you get to figure out what is going on. Mm -hmm. So, um, it was really to save my life and to, and to stay sober. Well, and I think you talk about there was this presentation of who you were, who a successful woman, a mom, you really had it all together in the Mm -hmm. eyes of people around you. But behind the scenes, there was this, you were basically living in hell Mm -hmm. and there's a duality between these two lives and you're having to navigate both of them and put on a happy face and pretend. Um, And I really resonated with that. I I lived with chronic illness for a long time, so I would always pretend like I was okay when I'd go home. I'd feel like I wanted to die. And that's a really scary place that I think a lot of people live in and they don't know how to almost blend those worlds so that they can work through that process. Yeah. I think most people live in, in what they present outwardly is very different than how they feel inside. It's not about sharing everything with everyone all the time. That's really not it. Um, I think a lot of times we think that's what vulnerability is, right? (laughs) But it's not, it's like just, um, when the time calls to be honest about what's going on with you and what, what your true thoughts and feelings are in your, you know, with those that you're intimate with. I mean, that's what I, what I see so much is that even the people, people's partners and their best friends don't know what's going on with them. And that, and that, that's a definition of loneliness, right? We're lonely that way. So. I mean, a lot of the people that I work with, 
struggle with the same thing. Yeah. And in a, what I've seen is the pattern is that their life lacks congruence. Yes. Like there's just, it's not that you have to be the same person all the time. Like the, the, per, the version of you that's talking to your boss is probably going to be different than the person of you that's talking to your mom or your partner. Obviously, right. Like there's going to be, you, you conduct yourself differently, but there's a difference between respect and, and conducting yourself in a way that's appropriate versus being full of shit. Yes. And that state of congruence and being seen in the external world in the same way that you feel that you, that you are internally yes. is so liberating, but it's polarizing and you lose people yeah. in that. Sure. It's really, really challenging because the vulnerability piece is one thing you have to accept about that is that people just aren't going to always 100% of the time like it. Of course, but that, you don't lose the wrong people. You don't lose the wrong people. Right. And it, yeah, it's, I'm glad you said that. I mean, it's not that I'm the same person to you right now that I would be to say my daughter, Yeah. but it's more about not having secrets. Yeah. Even to yourself, right? Not having, not hiding anything. Well, and the practice of self-honesty isn't necessarily, it's a skill set. It's a, oh it's a skill set that has to be developed. It's not something we like to believe that it's, it's natural for us, but it's, it's not. It's so not. That was a major revelation in sobriety when I realized that I'm pretty dishonest. I mean, I didn't, there's a difference between, you know, we, we know when we're outright deceiving people and lying. Right. But there was, um, for me, it was like people pleasing huge form of dishonesty. Oh yeah. It's just, you know, very socially acceptable form of dishonesty, but all the relationships where I had trouble, it was like going through the steps taught me this or showed this to me. It was like all these relationships where I have trouble, I am trying to be a people pleaser. And that is on me. Cause when you're people pleasing, it's like, I'm just trying to to keep the peace and I'm the Mm -hmm. easy one here and I'm the flexible one and I'm the one who's more giving. And it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, how's that working out? Yeah, because exactly. it's actually you're manipulating, you're lying. Oh man, that's a that's a that's a harsh that's a harsh pill to swallow. It was a very hard pill to swallow. I had to learn over and I'm still learning many oh. years to uh to how to be honest, self honesty. Where did you learn the people pleasing tendency? Oh, I mean childhood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where do we learn everything? Exactly, yeah. right? <laughs> When you, I mean, I don't know if you remember specific moments. I remember when I was young and the way I would try to please my parents and I, my biggest fear in life was I didn't want to disappoint them. So I would try and do everything right. Be the peacekeeper. If there was any chaos, I would bring it down. Yeah. Um, are there moments where you can look back and realize this is what really was the catalyst for me? Yeah. I think it was, I don't remember this per se because I was young, but I do remember I I'm sure this is when it started to happen. Cause I remember the years after this. So my parents got divorced when I was six and I remember you start lying. I started lying to just try to make everything okay. Because what happened, I mean, it's a very natural thing for kids to do when their parents get divorced because they all of a sudden these people are adversaries and you don't want them to be. And so you start lying like, and basically my lying was I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. And you start to, my dad's a pretty volatile guy, difficult man, even by his own admission. And I would watch his moods and just predict and, you know, make sure I was like just trying to control the environment as a child. That's very intelligent, but as an adult, it's not, it's, it's not that it's not intelligent. It's just, it's you're you start to lie. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm fine is a big lie when you're not fine. 
Well, I think that's one thing that's really important to recognize is, is, and I think when it comes to behavioral change or changing patterns in your life, is that whatever pattern you have for years, it's lying and saying that you're fine. At one point in your life, that was helpful. It's helpful it and intelligent. And it, you know, it, was, it was necessary. Yes. And I think sometimes we resent ourselves so much for the things that 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 we feel like are, that make us not good enough or whatever, fill in the blank with whatever language you have of why you're not the person you should be. Right. When really you, you need to look back on those things and find a way to be grateful for them so you can let them go. Absolutely. You can see them and say, hey, like, that, that served me. That was kept me safe, especially when you had a volatile parent or parents that struggle with substance abuse. Like there's, there's so much there that, Look, that you can dig into. Yeah. And even if you didn't, you know, a lot of people say, I didn't have a messed up childhood. So why am I, yeah. <laughs> how did I become an addict or whatever? And it's like, you don't, you, that's not the prerequisite, right? It's um, what you said is perfect. And that's what got me through a lot of the shame of being addicted it's like, this is actually born of a very, very human and intelligent instinct to, to feel better, to change, to deal with my environment, to soothe myself, to connect. It just goes awry. And when did all that start for you? Like when, when did the drinking become a, an actual problem? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of addictive tendencies or the, the desire to soothe, I mean, that starts so early, yeah. right? I can say it was food. And then, um, and then alcohol, I, I started drinking when I was about 16, but not seriously. I can look back now and say it was problematic kind of from the beginning, okay. but it didn't look that way. It was so much of an internal thing. And that's what I want people to hear because it's not the outward you know, circumstance or the, the outward consequences weren't there for a very long time. It was more, I, I have this, um, moment that I talk about a lot where I was at my high school graduation party and, uh, I, my family owned a restaurant. So big drinking family, big drinking culture. I, but at that point I was 17 when I graduated, but I could drink freely. And I was like, you can just make drinks at the bar. Now you're fine. You're going to college, <laughs> whatever. And, uh, I remember having my, it was like the middle of the day, having, um, my third Bacardi Limon diet Coke pouring it. And I was, I was really at a bad eating disorder at that time. I was, I had no tools, no skills to deal with anything. I was a mess, a lot of drama in my family and just a lot going on. And, and, uh, I was very wound, I wound really tight, you know? And I remember standing there drinking that drink and like feeling, I was really buzzed. And I had this feeling like nothing's wrong anymore. Like, however I felt a couple of hours ago, it's gone. And I felt not only that, but like everything's possible. Mm -hmm. And I really, I remember thinking so clearly, if I can just stay like this, everything will be okay. And I tried that. That's what yeah. I chased. So you asked when it became a problem. I mean, it was a problem. Well, it's interesting to hear that you, that was your, I have a hard time sometimes understanding alcoholism because yeah. my relationship with alcohol is so much different, right? right. I, I, I get loose and whatever and get, and I always pay the price, right? Especially yeah. now I'm in my uh, close to mid thirties and hangovers last a week. Yeah. But I, I, I call that like sl it's slippery, right? Mm -hmm. When you have that experience, like, Oh, I feel not only am I having a, a better time, but whatever burdens that I had in my life are now gone. Yeah. And it's, the, it's an escape. I had this, and I had the same feeling the first time I did cocaine. Mm -hmm. right? Oh my God. And I go, I remember the next day I was like, that drug is 
the best. It's like a self-marketing tool. Cause once Dude. you do cocaine <laughs> that night, all you want is more cocaine. Yes. That's it. Like you, you're on that, you're on that path. And it's not something I've done often or you're not very doing many it times. Right now. No, no. Not, no. <laughs> oh, I don't wake up and do a rail. Like that's not my, that's not my like, style. Laura's coming. Laura let's do it. Let's talk about sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> but it was one of those things that it, it, it quickly understood. And that was, 28. So I was older yeah. and it was just nice when you're older and have that experience. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm smart enough now to know, like, don't play with fire mm-hmm. if you don't want to get burnt. But oh, it was yeah. very much that similar experience of, Oh, well out now everything feels great. Mm-hmm. Everything's great. There's not a problem in the world. Nope. And it, it's, and it I'm brilliant easy. and, <laughs> and I'm eloquent and everyone wants to listen to everything I say, which is the furthest thing from the truth. Right? <laughs> oh God, it's the worst. <laughs> I remember that it was the first time and I woke up the next day and was like, Everyone was talking. No one was listening. (laughs) And everybody had the biggest plans. It's the best plans. We all started like seven businesses, I think. Oh, yeah. I woke up at LLC. That's the progression. You wake up and you're like, so we're going to Florida today. (laughs) We're starting that new company. We're going to make flip flops. (laughs) Out of recycled bottles. For frogs. It's going to be great. Froggy Flop LLC. It's going to be great. (laughs) You mentioned being so tightly wound, which I totally get. I call myself a recovering perfectionist and control freak. And I think when it comes to addiction and needing to numb out, it's interesting. I'm curious what you think about this need to control, which is kind of where you were, to then introducing the alcohol, which numbed a lot of things. Did that give you more of a semblance of control or did it help you feel like you were able to let loose? It's that. Yeah, Yeah. you don't, um, it's more not needing to control anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it lowers your, it, I don't want to get into like too much nerdy stuff, but it lowers your inhibitions. So you're not as self-aware as you usually are. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we want, right? We don't want to notice what, like all the things that wind us up. I'm to this, I'm to that. I'm no one's noticing. No, nobody's talking to me. And it, it allowed me to be flirtatious. It seemed like it let, let me do whatever I needed to do better to navigate social environments, boys, sex, all of that. It was like, it took away my need to control. But did it make you more controlling in the in-between? I remember you talking about being on the train and like having this bottle and do I, do I drink this? Do I not? It's, to me, it's almost like you're playing this chess game with your life with the alcohol involved where it's even more controlling because you're trying to create an experience and have an attachment to the letting go. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering if it, it was almost you were in this uh, space of the in-between of I'm letting go, but having more control over my life at the same time because I'm able to create this environment. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. Yeah. Um, there wasn't that much thought around it. Mm. So that train thing you mentioned, like I was barely 30 days sober for the, it took me like a year to get that. So it was a fight to get 30 days sober. And, um, I was invited to this party in the, in the city and I was doing all these mental gymnastics for like two weeks. Like, should I go? Shouldn't I go? I'll just go and be sober. No, that'll be terrible. I'll bring someone with me. Ah. And then I just said, fuck it, I'm going. And, um, I'm riding, I get on the train, I buy a bottle of wine before I get on the train. It's sitting between my legs. Literally, I'm about to like throw it away. And, you know, for me at that time, drinking was like, I had to, I had to imagine the worst possible thing that could happen that night. And I had to be okay with that. Like that was my bargaining process. It was like, am I willing to sleep with stranger? Am I willing to wake up somewhere? I don't, you know, no. 
And I, and I would have to be like, okay, I'm willing to pay that, you know? Damn. So it wasn't like just, and you know, I wasn't just going to go have a few drinks with people right. anymore. It was like, there was a lot on the line, but I, I say all that because the whole point of that process that, that, that I went through in that chapter, I didn't end up drinking. I ended up riding that train. I texted someone in the middle, like right before I drank, um, because that's what people had told me to do for so long. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Why would I do that? I know what they're going to say. <laughs> Tell me not to do this thing I want to do. Yeah. But I did. And then I, and she got right back and ended up doing this meditation. I somehow made it. And then I chucked the bottle of wine in the trash when I got there and to the train station, I took the next train back home. And when I got home, it was like, well, when I woke up the next day, it was like, you know, the night I didn't have was like played and was like, oh my God, I, you know, how did that, how did that happen? I need to know because that's a difference between like making it and not like, I, like I missed potential disaster by like this much. And, um, it was because my brain, your brain gets hijacked when you are in that addictive cycle. I mean, when you equate something with getting a hit, whether it's sex or Netflix or your phone or drugs or alcohol, work, whatever, when you equate that with getting a hit of dopamine, because that's what has happened for so long, even though that process has not felt good. For me, it hadn't felt good for a really long time, but I still, my brain was like, oh, the party and it's, it, and then the train starts going, right? And you're kind of, you're, you're out of your mind. Like I would watch myself do these things. I watched myself go get the bottle of wine. I watched myself get on the train, like full knowing, like you could lose your daughter, you could lose custody, you could die, you could kill someone. But that's, you know, so the control thing, it's like, I don't really know how to answer that because okay. you're kind of, um, I don't know if it's, I didn't, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I didn't want to, I know when I drank, I drank to to have zero control. Mm -hmm. I drank to black out every time I didn't drink. I didn't try to moderate. And I think it was to pull the ripcord on this like mind of mine. That's just racing all the time. Mm. You talked about dissociating from yourself. And so you would, you would be doing these things, but you would almost convince yourself that it wasn't you doing them. Yeah. How do you get to that point where you're trying to convince yourself of that? Well, it's cognitive dissonance, right? If you, do you know what that is? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a defense mechanism like built into it, built into our psychology so that we can't see the reality of what we're doing, because if we could see it fully, it's too painful. How do you get to that point? I mean, you get addicted, severely addicted. So when, so what I didn't say about that, when you are in that much of an, a, an acute addiction. And it doesn't have to be that bad. Like you, you can probably relate to this. Like I'm doing things I don't want to do yeah. that aren't good for me. Right. And I, and why am I doing it? But when I, at that level, it's like, when I was at that level, it's like my brain is, is correlating alcohol with food, like our most primal instincts, food, sex, shelter. Like it's on that level. It's like, if you don't do this, you're going to die. Like, that's how strong it is. So of course we don't override it. Of course we don't. But um, yeah, the watching yourself, the cognitive dissonance. I mean, I used to like see little mini bottles of wine in the bushes by my house that I had thrown there. And I'd be like, who the fuck did that? I just couldn't. Right. 
It's too hard. I couldn't um, think of myself as that person, as the person that left her daughter in a hotel room and got a DUI. Cause I was also a vice president of marketing and like drove a nice car and had a nice house. It was, it's wild. And yeah. And I think that keeps a lot of people at that level or, you know, lower keeps a lot of people stuck because the image that they have of themselves doesn't add up with how they're acting. Damn. That's, and that's hard. I mean, cause then, then I think there's the shame spiral, totally. right? Because it's, that's you, why we you, can't you know rec- it. You recognize it for a brief moment and <laughs> infuse shame. And yes. then it is, it perpetuates the same thing. Right. I mean, because what does it mean to be that person? Exactly. I mean, I think about this a lot with, so my, my, both my parents struggle with addiction, uh, mostly amphetamines, mm-hmm. right? Alcoholics as well, but that wasn't the primary yeah. problem. Yeah. And it was, you know, my mom let me and my two brothers, my two younger brothers live with my grandparents and my grand, let's say let, but my grandparents kind of intervened, Yeah, uh, which was the best thing for us. But looking back on it and reflecting as an adult, right. And having a little bit more context in the situation, I think that what she did was the bravest thing she could have done. One of the hardest things she could have done and the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. By letting us grow up with in a stable household when that was, that was the issue. And we've, we've discussed it at length, but looking at that and thinking about how, as a mother, how hard that had to have been and how that probably fueled the addiction even more because I can't, I, I can never understand what it's like for a mom to not be able to take care of their own kids. Right. Well, I, it, it, it's the absolute, I mean, there's a special shame for that. Exactly. It's its own, it's its own breed of shame. And, and then to pile that on addiction, it's, it's, Nothing I could have done. I was five years old, so I don't. <laughs> it's, right. it's very little. I thought it was my responsibility for a lot of my life, of but it, it wasn't. But it seems like that cycle just it just perpetuates itself, and I think that's one of the things that makes it so empathetic. Makes me so empathetic to that as being so close to it, and then yeah. understanding that I don't understand. I don't have any clarity. You can't. Just you just right. Can't, right. Yeah, it's just, like what's it's it like possible. to be a pregnant woman? You know, you <laughs> will know. never understand. <laughs> Most likely, it's no, you can't. Um, yeah, the the shame piece is is really important because it's like there's a shame of the self shame, you know, that what you think of yourself as a mom who's a, who's putting her kids in danger and choosing the substance over them and um and that is alone would be enough, but then there's the outside shame of what it's looked at like because that goes against everything that we think should is right in, you know, as far as culturally is like moms are supposed to take care of their kids and they're supposed, that's supposed to come first and it's supposed to be your instinct and it's supposed to be, it's natural. It's what's right, you know? And, um, I mean, it's a hard thing to climb out of, add to that, the actual addiction, the fact you're physically addicted and psychologically addicted. Yeah. It's a, um, it's a beast. When did you realize that the alcohol had become more prevalent and more of a priority than the motherhood? Oh, yeah. Um, the way that I opened the book is with, I left my daughter in a hotel room overnight. She was four years old with my, um, at my brother's wedding. That was in 2013. And although that was not the first time I had put her in danger or drove drunk with her or just not paid attention when I should have been, that instance was so stark and so also public, like my family was there, that that's when it snapped into my head. Like, because I, again, that cognitive dissonancing, it was like, I thought, like, I thought I was only messing up kind of my own life, Mm. you know, 
And I thought nothing will ever happen. Nothing like that will ever happen. Like I still always make my way back to her. Like I love her so much that nothing that bad could happen. And when that, and that popped a huge part of my denial when that happened, it was like, Oh, so anything could literally happen, including, you know, supplanting my mama instinct. Yeah. When you talked about the people pleasing as a child, I wonder if you saw any of that in her Mm. as you were going through this kind of spiral. Yeah. That's so hard to, 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 cause she was young. Um, but she, and it's so hard to know, you know, I'm sure that'll come out later in therapy. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's there. I plan on, you know, having a good healthy therapy fund for her. But um, <laughs> that's why you wrote the book, right? That's why I wrote <laughs> the book. Gotta feed that therapy fund. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> All the proceeds for that go to Almost Therapy. Oh, um, she was three when, when we got divorced and then uh, five when I got sober. So at this point she's 11. So she's been alive longer with me sober than not. But those first few years are where, you know, most of our inputs happen and most of our conditioning happens. So I'm sure she's not a people pleaser as now, which I'm so glad she's <laughs> right? really not. That's amazing. Um, but who knows, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about the motherhood shame and that's, I mean, that is so painful. I have dogs, not human babies, and I already feel bad about things that happen. Yeah. So I can't even imagine what you're going through. Yeah. How have you worked through not beating yourself up for the things that you did in the past? Yeah. That's the thing I get asked most often by, <sighs> by other moms because they just can't imagine not just beating the shit out of themselves forever. There's a few things. Uh, One is time, like time and distance from those things Mm -hmm. does help, Um, but not just time. I've done a lot of work too. Um, I listened to a lot of other women tell their stories and a lot of other mothers tell their stories. um, And that was so critical for me And, and me sharing my story Um, because what I, why that helps is, well, first of all, you, we all think we're the worst, right? We all think we're the absolute worst. And so you realize, oh, they all did the same things. They did unimaginable things. Okay. And then I also started to see myself because the, the, the sort of mind fuck of it all is that I love my daughter so much and I knew that. So like, what the hell? And so all that could point me to is like this thing had me like a di- someone in, in um, a sober woman who had been sober for a very long time said early in sobriety, like addiction is stronger than love until it isn't. And um, that's, that's powerful. It was very critical for me to hear. Cause she was a mom. She went through all the same things, left her kids, you know, unattended and all that. And she's, cause what, what we think is like, we, nothing should supplant the, you know, our mama instinct, like what we said. And it's not true. It was stronger than that until, until it wasn't. Um, so talking and sharing with other women was huge. And then writing about my story too. Um, I started to be able to straight to figure out the bigger context of my story. Like I wasn't just a piece of shit, you know, that chose drinking over our kids. I was a person in a lot of pain and I was a person who was very sick at that time. And that came from the things we've been talking about like things that were not my fault, you know, and, and 
that in, in doing that, I could take responsibility for it all. It wasn't like I just now I get to blame everybody. And that's why it was like, OK, now I understand the bigger context of my story. And I can take responsibility for it all. But it took years, you know, for me to not feel shame. I don't feel miraculously. I don't feel ashamed about anything that happened when I was drinking. But I, you know, five years ago, I, I wanted to like really crawl in a hole and die all the time. You know, being a, a, a child of parents with substance abuse issues and particularly with my mom, because the way it worked out with me was really interesting. So I lived with my grandparents. They were super loving. They were very much like grandparents. Right? Yeah. They, we got to do whatever the hell we yeah. wanted. <laughs> right? I always like say I, I could eat cereal like three meals a day. Yeah. No, one, no one really slowed me down, yeah. uh, which wasn't great for my, uh, my health, but it was fun. Right. Um, but my dad didn't really try. Yeah. Like he was just kind of did his own thing. My granddad, and he was younger. He's, I think he's in his like, like early seventies now. Yeah. So he was a young, they were young parents and young grandparents. Yeah. So he was, he kind of took this circuit role as my dad, my grandmother, more so it was my mom. Mm-hmm. And then, um, my mom would come in and out from five years old to 15. Pretty okay. Much. So, uh, that was really confusing. So there was like a lot going on. It's very disorganized, totally. very, very confusing. But one thing when my mom finally got her shit together, you know, I was about, to, I was a couple years from graduating high school. So I just stayed with my grandparents. My brothers went and lived with her and everything was pretty like fine. Right. If you met her today, you would never be able to tell. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's kind of weird actually. Yeah. Uh, and she even looks like super young. Yeah. It's, it's like, I'm like, how does your skin survive? She reverse aged <laughs> once she got sober. It's super impressive. People don't believe she's my mom and she's only 20 years older than me. Yeah. Like, almost exactly. Yeah. But she tried, she would try and come back and she would say, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Everything's going to be better. And of course I'm eight, nine, 10, 11 until I kind of got over it. And then she would bail and be oh. gone for a month. And you're like, and it was just the pattern of like that disappointment. You have no attachment issues. Mm. Oh yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> but I've worked through a lot of it. And the thing was, then I, then I, I, I get to college and then I immediately start spending time with like my college girlfriend's family, yeah, and my friend's family. And you realize, and I'm like, Oh my fucking God, this is, this is like not now I'm now I'm pissed and yeah. resentful at you right. for fucking me up. Right. You know? And that was, right. that was probably, Till I was 27, 28. Yeah. And honestly, not until I got into psychedelics. Psychedelics gave me the space to like zoom out a little bit and just give everybody. That's fascinating. And I hear that a lot. Yeah. And she was, and she hated it. She, I mean, she was an addict, right? So drugs She's to her scary. are, right. yeah, drugs are drugs. Um, the tone has changed a ton because she's seen how much like our relationship was non-existent. I had come yeah. to a place in my, in our, in my life where I was like, I will just not have a relationship with my mom. We couldn't talk. We just triggered the fuck out of each other and sc- like would scream at each other Yes, in yes. ways I never have talked to anybody, to anybody like yeah. that before. And she would do the same to me. It was super intense. And I was old. I was the oldest. So I got to experience oh. all of it. So and you, yeah, I relate to that. The hardest thing was too. she kept trying to fucking make up for it. Yeah. And then I wouldn't accept her like, over overdoing it. You couldn't. And then she would get frustrated with me for not accepting her overdoing, overdoing it. And I'm like, just, cycle. you just need to quit being so fucking ashamed of yourself because you're living in it. And now you're projecting it onto me. And now I'm the surrogate for your shame. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that fucking responsibility. No, that's a huge point. Like the, the, that's the, that's the responsibility point because a lot of times what people will try to do is when they make amends or whatever in their relationships is like, just put their shame, like here, just take my shame here. Don't you want it? You know, cause they don't want to feel it anymore. Yeah. Cause they haven't dealt with it. Exactly. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah. And it was, then it became my fault because I was, because I was bitter. All right. And I was like, I have every fucking right to be bitter. How about I accept you for fucking up and you accept me for being pissed about it. Yeah. And then we're in a good place, Yeah. you know, cause at this point there's not any resentment and, there, and I've been able to kind of, I've had enough time in my life to put the dots together and be like this 
trying to love my mom through all of that stuff, even as, as, as fruitless as it was at the time, it gave me a broad capacity to really empathize and connect with people and care for people that are really trying their fucking best. Cause I believe with all of my heart that she was trying her, her best. Yeah. And it just, that's, that's, that's where she was she at. Do at the time. Once we got to that place, then she started sharing more things with me about why it happened yeah. and when it started and what was the core wound that really, that she's never told anybody else aside oh. from her mother and me. I'm like, we're the only ones that really wow. know what's happened. And then uh, it, like literally the moment she, she said that like my whole life made sense. I was yeah. like, Oh, well, now I understand. Yeah. But you were so ashamed of whatever caused this whole shit show that you couldn't even share it. And all I needed, all I wanted was to understand Right. me asking questions. And I would be so inquisitive and curious about what happened and why. And I would just wanted to understand her more would always come out as me, like hold, like me criticizing her or holding it against her. And it was this, she was so ashamed of her past that she, she couldn't, couldn't even, take that. and I was like, I'm not criticizing. I just want to know. Yeah. Like I would like to know that way if I'm ever in a scenario where I'm working with somebody or my kids, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen, but they get themselves in a situation yeah. like this. I know your story so I can then work with someone else in that way. Like, I just want to understand you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what you guys went through is a completely normal process. Absolutely. You know, like that anger was necessary for you because you had to build that boundary out and push her out so that you like established yourself. Right. And then, and then luckily you both had the desire, I guess, obviously to, to figure out what was going on yeah. unless you just stumbled upon it with enough fights or whatever. <laughs> but that's a place that most people just never get out of. They just stay locked in that like trauma pattern. Yeah. Well, I think people pretend that they want to pretend they that they forgive someone or pretend they're not angry. Right. Cause it's a spiritual thing to do. And it's yeah. kind of the easier thing to do. Well, to and you just, feel sorry for them too. Yes. You know, but you're not being fucking honest with yourself or them. Yeah. So there's no real way to make amends there because you're just pretending to be okay because you just want them to not feel bad. Cause then you don't want them to relapse. Right. And right. then again, you're just taking more responsibility yeah, for their a lot shit. Of pressure. Yes. It's, it's crazy. And I, and I understand it. And I saw, you know, I saw my grandmother who, who passed away a couple of years ago, fall into that trap and just be a complete enabler. Oh. And it was so hard. Cause I know she just came from the, she just came from the sweetest place, mm -hmm. but it was really, really challenging to see. Yeah. The, the, the parent child dynamics are the hardest with addiction and because it's, I mean, we could go on and on. That's a whole other show, right? Mm -hmm. But you're meant to grow up much quicker and you're taught to be hyper aware and hyper vigilant of your environment and you're programmed to think your parents are God, you yeah. know? So yeah. you want to, like you said, you just want to take her back all the time. Of course you did. Yeah. But you get, uh, you get to be an adult. That's what happened to me too. I would go and like see my ex-husband's family and my friend's families. And I'd be like, Oh, not every family drinks like a lot, you <laughs> yeah. know, like yeah. it's not like the central activity of every get together. It's mm -hmm. like, huh. <laughs> you talked about feeling like you deserve to be punished. Um, mm -hmm. and I think for women in general, addiction aside, there's these feelings of uh, not being good enough, not knowing your own worth or your value. Mm -hmm. What was happening for you and feeling like I deserve this? I deserve where I am. Yeah. I, Certainly when I was at the point where I had, I was ashamed long before I ever had reason to be ashamed. Like it just seems like that I absorbed that, you know, um, ashamed of having feelings of like any feelings I felt towards boys of my body, just all of that. But then when I progressed into addictive behavior, I mean, you, you behave 
shitty. So you have reasons then to be ashamed. You know, it's like now I'm a liar. I'm a cheater. I am a shitty friend in a lot of ways. I'm a terrible partner. Um, you know, so I, then I had reasons to be ashamed. So it feels like, of course I should be punished. I deserve whatever I get because I am actually, I saw myself as just a bad person rather than an unwell person or a person in pain, which is the big difference. And, um, I don't know that that's just women. I think that that's human. Yeah. People in general. Yeah. It's like, I'll, I'll pay. I mean, I remember when my ex-husband and I finally divorced and for a long time before that, I was like, I will take all to myself, you know, I'll take all the blame forever. I'll just wear it on my back, like a freaking backpack for the rest of my life. If I just can be out and he can be okay, you know, cause I deserve it. Mm. And I don't feel that way now. But yeah, was your question how I got to that place or what you do about it? I mean, both really, because then you yeah. come out of this and then it's it's anybody who's have who's having a shift in identity and this surrender to what is meant to be for you. You have this new understanding of my worth, my value, what I bring to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that can be really difficult because you're starting from square one and reevaluating and restarting your life in a lot of ways. Yeah, totally. I mean, I needed help to get to get there. I needed other women, especially to like reflect back to me what they saw in me because my perception of myself was very distorted and cruel and mean. Right. So I had to have people love me and show what it was like to be loved and reflect back to me what was possible for me. So I think that, I don't think this is something that people can just do on their own. That's why you need therapy. And for me, it was therapy and 12 steps and yoga and, 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 you know, a lot of work with other people, you know, people talk about a lot about like self-love and I don't know that you can love someone that you don't know. Right. Hmm. And so like, I didn't know who the fuck I was. That's really interesting. I don't know. What do I want? I don't know. I don't know. What do I even, am I hungry? (laughs) Am I tired? (laughs) You know, like it's, it starts at that level when you're learning to be when, when I was first sober, it's like everything was new. You're like rebirthed. Totally. And that can be divorce. It can be having a child, losing someone, addiction, whatever you are reborn. And you, and I had to learn. And I tell people this a lot, like, you don't feel like you have to love yourself because we don't even know what that means. <laughs> like, how about just getting to know yourself? Like, who is this person that I'm, who am I? You know, uh, what do I like? What do I want? And start small. Like, like maybe what do you want for breakfast? <laughs> Not like, what do you want for the rest of your life? Yeah. Like, but the real pain of the addiction, like the addiction was killing me, but the real pain is I knew I was killing my potential. I knew it. I felt it like in my spirit, like it was a spiritual death. And when I stopped drinking, all this creativity came out of me and all this, all this like almost goodness that I had tamped down came out of me and not good, like good behavior, but like my heart, like I, you know, I could feel fully and I suddenly had a conscience, like I couldn't stomach lying, you know? And it was like, that's who I was. And so you start to see that. And, um, I think someone said it's, I don't know who said this, but esteem, self-esteem comes from esteemable acts. So it's like one act at a time, one conversation at a time, you start to behave 
as like someone with dignity. And then all of a sudden you start to have it. I think it's interesting too. you say when you stopped drinking, all this creative creativity poured out of you. Mm. And I explain a lot of this as a coming home. So in the last year and a half for me, I've been getting to know myself all over again. I feel like I was reborn in a lot of ways. And it wasn't that this version of me wasn't there. No, she was there. I was pushing her down and there was this fear around it. And so it's really a coming home and a getting to know myself all over again, because who I had been for 30 years of my life was a version of myself. I wanted people to think I was, and I wanted to people please exactly. and live up to these standards and ideals of others. When in reality, my true self was just like waiting to emerge. He's like, Oh, <laughs> let me out. Totally. And I finally let her out. And, and it really does feel like you're just coming back to yourself. It's totally, it's a return. Yeah. Much more of a return than like discovering something like finding something. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's you're in there all along, you know, you talk about spiritual development and spiritual growth and it's investing in yourself in that way. Did, did that, did that happen? Like once you started to feel all the feelings, right? Started to feel again, were you able to, is that when you got curious about looking into that type of growth? I had always been interested. Oh, you always had been always. I've always been a seeker always. Like I've always had some concept of God, not like as a person or a, I've never been religious. I was, raised Catholic, sort of, like sort of Christmas and Easter type of, yeah. you know, mass type thing. But I always have always had, um, some sense, sense of God and like a deep faith in, in, in something bigger. And so that part was like there in me always. And it just came forth more in, um, or I, I got more the connection between it's, got clear between me and, and God, as I call it clear in when I wasn't drinking. And I knew, like, I knew when I was drinking, I could almost feel it like on a visceral level, the disconnection for me and God, or like this, my true self, you want to call it that Mm -hmm. this bigger energy. I just, I could feel it. So once you reconnected with that, like what, what was that, what was that experience like? Like, where did, where did it go? Like what changed? Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I started to notice was how much was working for me. Like I would meet the right person at the right time who would just give me this little seed of hope that I, like I would meet another sober person randomly in a world where I knew no sober people, (laughs) like none. I worked in advertising and, um, I would have to do a work trip and I, on the flight out, I would be a nervous wreck because traveling well, you know, for work and trying to be sober was a near impossibility. And I would meet someone on the plane who was sober and it was like, okay, (laughs) okay. I started to, to write. I mean, for me, that was a very spiritual practice. It was a very spiritual, like yeah, any creativity I think is, is you're creating something right. And where does that come from? So just feeling that come like bursting forth almost, um, getting these like glimmers of just, even when I was in really deep pain, this sense that like, I don't know how to do this, but something inside of me does like, how am I going to get, how am I going to do this forever? And I, and I would think like, I don't know how, but something inside me knows how. So it was like that, you know, it wasn't like this 
light and like it was more you just, didn't walk into the light I didn't it was more just this like um I don't know I think it was just like I could see a perspective that was much bigger um I posted yesterday it's from a course in miracles but that a, a miracle is a shift in perception I would have these shifts in perception where I was like there's something much bigger for me in this story this isn't just Laura got horrifically addicted to alcohol and, you know, her marriage ended and her all, it, you know, this is like, there's a much bigger story here. When you, when you tapped into that deep sense of spirituality and connection, mm-hmm. for me, it allowed a lot more trust, trust of mm. myself and trust in yes. letting go and surrendering. And that there was something bigger than myself. Yes. Did you experience a new sem- like sense of trust for you? Totally. Yeah. Like that's what I mean about things were working for me. Mm-hmm. Like even when stuff would go wrong, you know, it was like, there's a bigger picture going on and I can trust that picture. I can trust that, that if I lost something or someone that that's what was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, to like less, to lessen my grip a little bit on everything. Right. Yeah. You also mentioned this idea of dancing with the divine, yeah. which I really love because I'm in this whole uh, state of flow right now. I'm trying to just allow and dance and play and mm-hmm. just, uh-huh. and work with things rather than butt up against them and force it. Yeah. What does that mean for you? Oh, it's a good question. Trusting timing the timing of how things happen. Um, it's back to that control thing, you know, <laughs> Isn't like it always, always. <laughs> it's like the serenity prayer is really good. You know, it's like grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, which is most things courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to the difference. And it's a lot of that. It's like, mo- I can't control other people. I can't control what I want, getting what I want when I want it. Um, and the best thing is, I think, seeing over time that the things I didn't get when I wanted them and when I allowed myself to just let things go, <laughs> it turned out so much better than I could have ever imagined, right? Better people came into my life. I mean, I thought I would have a book deal and have my book published like four years ago, you know? <laughs> it's like, uh, thank God it didn't publish a book four years ago. Probably been a terrible book, you know, and um, that, that just wasn't there for me. So I think for people, most people, it's like trusting that things happen as they're supposed to, when they're supposed to. And it's not that you just hang back. That's not it. It's like you, you wait sort of to be, <laughs> it's quite the opposite, actually. It's like, I trust that you, God, divine spirit, whatever, knows the the right path here and and ha, has it perfectly planned. And, and I'm going to, my prayer is in the morning is, um, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say? And to whom? And you trust that that information is going to come. And then you have to act on that when you get it. Even if it's like, really? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> really? Do I have to? Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I I wanted to ask as well, I know you and Glennon Doyle are close and her books really moved me. Mm -hmm. And this book that you wrote is so incredible. And I'm not, I told you this earlier. I'm not saying this because you're in my home. (laughs) It is one of the best books I've ever read. Thank you. 
And what I love about what both of you have done is you have opened up a conversation for a lot of people, parents, women and men to be radically honest with themselves and to not feel that shame. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of the response that she's gotten as I followed her on her journey. I'm just curious what the response has been for you in people feeling like they're finally being seen and finally being heard in their pain. Yeah. Um, great question. I think it just frees people to like, Oh, now I can, now I can just live my life. You know, I can stop pretending maybe because honesty brings us closer to love always. It's not convenient. (laughs) It's obvious. It's, uh, uh, it's sometimes costs us a lot but it always brings us closer to love, right? Not the other way around. Like I think like drinking almost gets us there. Just like lying almost gets you there, but it never brings you all the way home. And so I think when, when I see, I mean, Glennon was a great example. I, (laughs) I, before I wrote my book, before I started writing at all, when I was still drinking, I remember going onto her blog. It was like momastery at the time. Yes. And, um, and seeing like her, I didn't know who she was. I saw her bio and it was like her, you know, with her three kids. And she just wrote, I'm a recovering alcoholic and a bulimic and this and that. And I was like, oh my God, she just said it. She just says, <laughs> all, all, she just said the, all that. And I was like, I want to do, I'm going to do that. I'm doing that. Wow. And, I, and then but the funny part was like, well, Oh, you got to get sober first. <laughs> you can't say that. That one. Except I'm drunk. Shit. Um, but it, but it was like that. I mean, that's a God moment too, for me. Cause that, that made no sense in my life at that point, but I was like, I'm doing that. That's what I'm doing, you know? And I, and so I think the question you asked, like, how does it hit people? Whatever, whatever they're hiding behind, whatever they're, whatever is not working for them anymore. And they, and we know it, like we know it, you know, they can take an honest look at that mm-hmm. or take the next step or stop hiding people, pleasing, whatever. Um, I think it just gives us, it makes us brave to see other people do that type of thing. Yeah. And in that vein, I also just want to commend you and recognize you for the way that you have supported her. I I saw you post the picture with her book untamed the other day. Yeah. And in my mind, I was like, God damn, I love this woman. Like you're on your own book tour right now with your new book. And this is your baby. And it's a really big deal. And you pour your heart and soul into something. Yet here you are on Instagram supporting another woman who also has a new book coming out. And it was such a perfect lesson for me because I think so often we get caught up in thinking, oh, but I have this thing. I can't support her because then people will buy her book, but not my book. And it makes me less than. And you just rise above that. Oh, I I did. I don't just rise above it. So I'm glad you brought that up because it's hard. Mm. It's not easy. Um, Doing that at that moment for Glennon was easy, Mm -hmm. but there's stickiness to it always because what the tendency is like, if someone gets some, there's less for me. There's not enough room for all of us. And I want more of that. I want more of what she has. Right. right? Uh, Pretending like it's a zero sum game as if people only read one book in their whole life. Right. (laughs) But, but we're like that with everything. If there's, if, I mean, and I would love to say I'm beyond that a hundred percent. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. 
thank you for saying that. And and once I put, okay, the, the, the funny thing is once I put it out there, I was like, oh, that felt good. Mm. That felt so much better than the small way I want to feel to try to control this whole thing that I can't control, you know? Um, and the truth is like, she supported the hell out of me. Um, but yeah, that's a, you know, anyone that's sort of in your space, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, can I do it? Can I, can I support them? Is that going to hurt me? And it never does mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. The women I look towards or the men I look towards, I don't follow as many men like for my work, but the woman, the women I admire most are the ones who cheer on other women. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes it's like, I'm going to do that until it feels like who I am. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for sharing all of that. I appreciate it so much. So I did hear on uh, one of your old podcasts Uh that you were, you were, I believe you were highly critical of the self-help world. (laughs) So I want to give you a platform right now (laughs) to criticize self-help. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) In whatever way it feels right to you. Yeah. I think, um, not all self-help is bad, but my friend Sam Lamott says you can't get rid of your humanity. And a lot of what self-help, a lot of what it tries to do is tell you that you can, Ooh. you can, you can get rid of your, your humanity, you know, and you can't, um, I don't know that we're supposed to be like continually improving ourselves. Mm. I think that's, do you want her to say that directly to me and like look well, me in the eye? No, Alan, Alan Watts talks about this. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm reading one, a compilation of a bunch of his like short writings. Yeah. And I love this phrase. This, this is, and he was my gateway into, I would say spirituality and self-understanding. Mm-hmm. And, and he says that trying to improve yourself is like trying to bite your own teeth. Like the <gasps> part of so you good. that decides that you need improving is actually the part that needs improving. And is the part that can never be improved. Yeah. Cause it's the part the that's humanity. criticizing you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like trying to, to poke a pin. I think self-awareness yeah. is great. And to the degree that self-help can do that for us, yeah. ask us questions. This is what I don't like about self-help is that a lot of self-help books give you answers. They're selling you solutions. And what we need more than anything are questions ask me the right questions and let me answer, but it's not as sexy. People don't want to do the work of asking themselves the questions. They want to be told what to do. And that sells a lot, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like why the diet industry is so big and why, and, and the, the reason why the diet industry is so big, why, why self-help is so big is because it, it has us chasing this ideal that is unattainable, Mm -hmm. truly unattainable. Right. So, I think self-awareness is a nice thing. I think spirituality, yes, but at its core, spirituality is a big freaking mystery. It's not answers. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the whole point though. That's the whole point. And that's the thing I think when you go down, cause it seems like you, not that you would identify as this, but your philosophy kind of leans Buddhist in a way mm-hmm. when you talk about detachment yeah, from expectations. Yeah. But I think that, you know, and what Buddhism did for me, and I won't say that I'm a Buddhist, but right. I think it's only because I'm insecure about not knowing enough about Buddhist or what it means to be Buddhist. <laughs> but it's definitely yeah. the teaching that I lean into is, is being okay with the big questions and not having the answers. Right. Like my life is so much more free when I'm okay, not knowing, not knowing what happens when I die or not. Cause I don't, I'm not going to know. Or I'm not only, knowing the best what your is, relationship is. Yeah. Like, I don't know. What are we doing here? <laughs> like people don't want to, that's a scary place to yeah. be. It's and, like and that comfort middle and place. uncertainty is so liberating. It oh, is so good. It's difficult too, but it's, it's one of those things too. And even understanding that you don't really need improving. 
Yeah. There's no improving of the self. You're not broken. Self recognition, yeah. self understanding, but even the self help piece is a lot of times yeah, it's selling you a solution because somebody who 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 you who wants you to perceive them as having that all together, right, is going to sell you how to have it all together, right. And I can think probably the only person that that does a good job of that is the woman that cleans people's houses on Netflix. I don't remember her name. Oh my God, uh, Marie Kondo. <laughs> because that's very tangible. It's like listen, yes. Put some fucking shelves in your closet there. But that's like your sneaky stuff. behind the door spirituality. Oh, it's absolutely. like all of a sudden, hmm, oh, wow. what you, happened? Because your, your physical space is cleaned up. Maybe your mental emotional space is cleaned yeah. up. I don't know. Yeah. It's I mean, weird. that's what minimalism too is <laughs> right. too. Right. And, but they don't, but it's not marketed that way. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think, um, I'm kind of a snob too, I guess. Like I read a lot of <laughs> self-help books and I'm like, really? Oh yeah, really? I'm at, I'm, come yeah. on! I, I sent on my self self righteous soapbox. <laughs> can you and criticize self help? Can you share some of your favorite books that you really feel like have transformed you? Sure, um, just any kind. Yeah. All right, I'll do some fiction and and nonfiction. Ooh. My favorite book of all time is The History of Love by Nicole Krause. It's what I named my daughter after. The main character is Alma. It's just amazing writing, and it's. Oh, it's so good. Pema Chodron's When Things Fall Apart will always be, she will always be like my maybe number one teacher, Tibetan Buddhist nun. Yeah, I know who, I know who Pema Chodron is. <laughs> I guess I, I guess I am sort of a Buddhist. Um, John O'Donohue, I have to pick a book. To, to Bless the Space Between Us is probably up there. He is like a late Irish poet, theologian, philosopher, writer, just that man had a direct line to God. It's like, you can't, uh, I don't even know um, how to describe his work, but it's gorgeous. People, if they want an introduction to John O'Donohue, listen to his interview on On Being, the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett. It is one of, I listen to it at least once a year. It's one of the best pieces of like content there there is out there. I feel like I should do one more. I have like the 11 books on my, <laughs> I'm, so good. I, I'm trying to visualize that are the ones that are on my, um, my desk. Yeah. I think I'll leave it at that. The rest are like fiction. I and, love it. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. This well, has been amazing. Yeah. Thank you yes, so much. Thank you for having me. You guys are awesome. So your new so book, grateful. we are the luckiest, the surprising yes. magic of a sober life. Mm -hmm. I love it. Thank you. So good. And everybody can find that on Amazon, all that kind all of fun places, stuff. All the places. Yeah. Go to, your, go to a bookstore though. Yeah, I endorse going to bookstores. Yes. yes, please. Yeah, shouts to book people in Austin, by the way. The best bookstore of all oh, time. You been there? I just did a, an event there. Isn't it the best? It is crazy. It's huge. It's awesome. Yeah. It's just, you can find, yeah, it just feels so good. I used to I go in there and just wander. I go to Whole Foods and book people. Yes, I was staying right there. I was like, oh, I could live here. Right in this little <laughs> I, did, I did live there. I lived down the road. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so, yeah. so much. And where can everybody find you on... Uh, on my website, media. it's just my name, lauramccowan.com. It's all my things. And we'll link, we'll link everything in the show notes, of course. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah. So grateful. <laughs> That's it. How good is she? She's good. She's so good. Make sure you guys get Laura's book, We Are the Luckiest, wherever books are sold. Right now, support your local bookstores if you <laughs> local can. Local bookstores, yeah. Order online or pick up or whatever you can do. And support your local podcast by uh, sharing this with your with your friends and leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts and other things. And Whatever have, it is that you can do. Yeah, and we have presents for you. Don't forget, even though I'm not going to the post office right now, I have online presents. 
e-presents, e-gifts. <laughs> Love you guys. Thank y'all so much. And we'll see y'all next time. Have a good one. This show is brought to you by Soul Fire Productions.